rockers. I was in a band, I say. When casual talk turns nostalgic, or when people want to know what I was like in high school and I don't know how much I want to explain, I say, I was in a band. Oh yeah, they ask, in a friendly, open-ended way that makes me feel bad for being vague, but not bad enough to be more specific. What kind of music? It was heavy stuff, punk rock, I'll say. Clipping my words tight enough, I hope, that it will be clear that I don't want to take Lewis and Clark on an expedition through my formative years. It's true, of course. I was in a band in high school. Two or three, in fact. But only one of them recorded anything or played out more than a few times. I was in three bands after high school, too. But keeping it simple, saying I was in a band, and when pressed, making it clear that not only would you not like it, but I don't want to talk about it, is easier than saying, I was in a hardcore punk band that promoted a drug-free, vegan lifestyle, which sounds cute, but operated in a scene that was largely made up of people with undiagnosed mental illness, and who, in an attempt to find a place where they didn't feel alienated and alone, created a community where depression, anxiety, emotional abuse, and in some places violence, was the norm. And for fun, we hazed each other mercilessly and literally screamed at the world. And while you're staring at me uncomfortably, I have to admit that I'm, while I'm no longer a part of that world, I don't feel fully comfortable in this one, and that the simmering rage I felt then is still in me. I just do a better job of passing as a normal person. It's been 20 years since I tried to leave that angry kid behind, and 10 since I sold most of his stuff. I auctioned off most of my records and ephemera from the 90s hardcore scene, keeping only the things that sparked joy, visiting it time to time like a gravesite. I learned, sort of, how to interact with people without leaning exclusively on sarcasm and biting humor. I learned how to dodge people from the old days, how to avoid answering new acquaintances' questions in too much detail. But then middle age snuck up on me, and a dopamine reuptake inhibitor took hold in my brain, and talk therapy helped me forgive myself for the venom I smeared on everything I touched. A stranger invited me to join a Facebook group, where I found myself among old friends, acquaintances, and strangers whose faces and names I recognized from album jackets and fanzine covers, people I hadn't interacted with or even thought of since we were all fucked up kids. And like that, I was back in the house that I ran away from, trying to make peace with what happened there and the family I left behind. As awkward as it felt to be back in that world, even virtually, I felt relief, too. The 90s hardcore scene shaped me, or at least gave me a framework in which I could express fundamental aspects of myself. It's where I became an entrepreneur, a writer, and an activist. In the early days of this group, Someone joked that it was the high school reunion he actually wanted to go to, and I felt seen. I don't agree with or even like everyone there, but at least with them I know where to start. For years I've hidden different parts of myself to keep from feeling alienated. Every interaction is an opportunity to make a reference that requires a backstory that will likely only lead to more questions and awkward explanations and fuck if I need to feel more isolated than I already do. As much as I'd love to not be that angry kid anymore, I am. So co-workers know work, Neil. Sports friends know sports, Neil. Combat sports friends know MMA, Neil. Neighbors and school families know dad, Neil. And outside of the internet, anymore I only talk to a handful of people who know hardcore, Neil. My son knows comic book, Neil. My wife knows husband, Neil. Some people get two Neils. A select few get three. Only my wife gets all of it. I'm a collection of pieces trying to be whole. I don't want to be isolated. I want to be easy and open and share my life with people. But I don't. Not really. Not yet. 
Until I figure that out, it might just be easier to keep telling anyone who's curious that, yeah, back in the day, I was in a band. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. I think a good kickoff point would be you had a bit of a, can we say viral, viral, viral in certain circles, medium post. Yeah, I, I would say that I guess within a certain age group uh, and in a certain scene, uh, yeah, it, it found its way around. I was getting feedback, you know, second and third hand from people who were having, you know, offline conversations about it among themselves. So it seems to have struck a nerve with a, a niche group of us. You know, I think like a lot of great art, that piece from you was one of those things that had to come out. And then once you start, uh, you know, once you open the floodgates, it just sort of comes rushing in. What sort of inspired that? So got years ago now, uh, I got a friend request from a rando kid in Santa Cruz, California, uh, on Facebook and I accepted just to find out why, um, he was a hardcore kid. Um, but I had no connection with him. We had like maybe one mutual friend. Um, and it was like maybe somebody from Europe. So it was super random. And pretty immediately after I accepted his friend request, he invited me to join a Facebook group of basically middle-aged people who were involved in the nineties hardcore scene. Um, and it turns out that Jesse, that kid, was like a super fan of 90s hardcore, which then and now is weird to me. Um, but I, I, he's of a generation that were born basically when we were doing it and now has a sort of romanticized view of the scene during our active years, my active years, I guess. I mean, for a while, that Facebook page was probably like – my mental health lifeline. And I spent a long time trying to not talk to people about the hardcore scene to try to not talk to people about things I had said, the person I had been, the way I treated people, the way I viewed the world, the way I moved through the world. Um, I felt a lot of, embarrassment, shame, guilt. Uh, I just, I felt like I had been, I'd been a shitty person for a long time. And even if, even if my motives on some level were, were righteous or pure, or I was doing a good thing, I was causing damage to myself and pretty much anyone I came in contact with who wasn't healthy enough to realize that I was toxic and to keep me at arm's length. So being, 
in that group of people breathed life into a part of me that I'd been trying to suffocate for 15 years. And it made me really start to wrestle with that person again and try to figure out like, okay, which parts of 18 year old Neil should have been killed and which parts of him are still in me, which parts of him are, am I okay with, you know, like, what parts of him do I actually regret walking away from? And same thing for 25-year-old Neil and 30-year-old Neil and 35-year-old Neil. I, as I got into therapy, one of the things that my therapist encouraged me to do was to try to find ways to express all the different things in my life that I hadn't been expressing. Um, to stop compartmentalizing myself so much because, you know, I had, I had people that I knew and had relationships with from, uh, school in the nineties and hardcore in the nineties. And the two really didn't mix that much. Then I had people that I met in college who weren't involved in the scene and people who were involved in the scene as I kind of moved out of whatever, like the vegan strategy scene into more of like the, I don't know, denim vest, indie metal scene, you know, and then in my professional life, I had work friends, I had punk friends, I had MMA friends, I had, you know, art scene friends. And I never felt like I could really cross the streams between any of them because None of them really – I never felt any of them could really vibe with each other, but it also left me feeling alienated in every single situation. So I was just enough like people to be able to interact in a lot of different social circles, but I never really felt like I was in community with anyone because I always had – didn't have to, but I chose to leave parts of myself at the door as a preemptive way to avoid having to sh expose parts of myself that – might lead me to be, you know, rejected or to feel weird or to not feel like a part. And I was like, I, I didn't feel like I was really a part of it anyway. So I don't know why I fucking cared. But, um, this year I wrote something just on Facebook about how I wasn't going to be doing any, how I wasn't going to be doing any, uh, resolutions, you know, like that stuff feels good to say and to write about, you know, the first couple days of the year. But, whatever you're trying to fix or improve, there are probably underlying issues that are better addressed. So, you know, I basically said what I want to do this year is, is become whole. Like I want to stop being different little, uh, different slivers of myself, depending on the setting. And I want to bring, a complete person to whatever setting I'm in. It doesn't mean that I have to talk to everybody about every single thing that's on my mind or every single thing I'm feeling or every single thing I believe, but I need to get to a place as a person where I don't feel like I have to hide essential elements of my humanity simply out of fear that people won't understand me or accept me as I am. So, you know, it's, it's two part. I need to be okay with it. Because inevitably people will reject it. People will dislike it. People will be confused by it. And I need to be comfortable enough to be myself in that situation. And conversely, who knows? 
people might actually like me if they know me. And that's terrifying because I've always thought that I was a piece of shit. So to answer your question, all of that led to it, but I don't know what led to it. I just decided that I was going to say something about it, and that's what ended up coming out. It was kind of just like, uh, it was it was a bloodletting, you know. Like I just I just opened something up, and that's what came out. And I didn't really know how I felt about it until I put it all down on the screen, and I could look at it and say, "Oh, that's that's interesting <laughs> that I felt that way." I'm, I'd imagine we'll uh, include a link to the piece we're talking about in the show notes. But if if you could kind of broad strokes the listener into what kind of the theme of that was, uh, spitting off from everything you just broke down so eloquently. Yeah, the gist of, of those uncomfortable situations that I, I think more, well, I, I'm sure, you know, not to skip ahead, but I'm sure part of what you learned from the feedback to that piece was that there are a su surprising amount of us out here who can relate to that feeling of um, never quite your whole self in these different compartmentalized uh, portions of your life and sort of the unique role that having spent so much of one's life in something like the hardcore scene or any subculture that, uh, you know, operates in its own ecosystem, kind of independent of regular socialization. So, yeah, the, the gist basically is, you know, when, when people are being friendly and trying to have normal human interactions, they ask questions. And when the answers to those questions are not typical, that leads to more questions. And it, it, gets, <laughs> yes. you down this, it gets you down a rabbit hole of talking about shit that makes people look at you like you've got a third eye. And that's not helpful for me in my mental health and my sense of self. So my coping mechanism was to just tell people, you know, I was in a band and then I would just kind of look at them or I would, you know, turn around or walk away or whatever. Like I try to give some signal that like, this is the end of that line of questioning. Thank you. Um, yeah. Without being a dick, which is hard. You know, the irony of my life is I spend a lot of time trying not to be an asshole and everyone thinks that I'm a dick. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. So what I was trying, what, what I ended up expressing, what I was surprised to find out I felt was that I just, ha I was carrying this sense of isolation around and it was so damaging to me to never be myself, to never be able to, to relate to people in a way that I imagine other people can, and maybe they can't, you know, maybe we're all just fucked and we never really are able to, to be in community with other people the way that we want to, or the way that Hallmark movies show us that is possible. But, you know, I, I want really badly to be open with people and to be easy with people and to just be myself, but I don't know how yet. And I'm working on it, but it still leaves me in this uncomfortable position where I just don't want to talk about it. You know, I just don't want to have to go down the rabbit hole every time I'm getting to know someone. You know, case in point, uh, and this is this is my little, this is my my bonus for you that you'll get a kick out of. Go on. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, I go to Guitar Center to look at USB mics because. 
I'm 40 and I like going to stores and I own a retail store, so fuck Amazon. And the kid working in pro audio at Guitar Center is, you know, pro audio guy. And he's chatting me up about stuff and asking me what I'm using it for. I was like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast. And he's like, oh, what's it about? So in my head, I'm like, okay, he's being friendly. Be friendly back. Like let's let's try to be a normal person, and <laughs> I am a human. Humans function this way. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I feel like fucking data. Like that's my <laughs> choice. I can either be data or a total savage. I don't. I'm trying to find the middle ground. So I, I tell him like, oh, you know, I've got an old friend. And we were both involved like in the music scene, and he still is, and I'm not. And he left indie, and I didn't. And we're just you know going to talk about where life took us and. And all that, you know. And he's like, oh, cool. What kind of music? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. This is like, this is what I'm trying to avoid. So I, you know, I, I, I straightened my back up and I said, hardcore. And he looks at me and says, oh, what kind of hardcore? <laughs> and he, said, he's like, do you mean like polyrhythmic post hardcore? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, do you mean, do, do so, you mean DeGent? Were you in a DeGent band? Oh, uh, yeah. So I look at him and I'm like, this dude is 20, you know, maybe. Uh, he had just humble bragged to me about how he built his high school's podcasting studio. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, my mind is reeling because I'm like, a high school podcasting studio. What the fuck? But yeah, uh, we, because we remember the, the AV club being um, a weird rolling stand. <laughs> on yeah. wheels with a television and a VCR on it. Yeah. Because we remember wondering why anyone would want to uh, search the university of Minnesota library catalog on the internet from Indianapolis. So I look at him and I say, well, what is, what is hardcore to you? You know, like it's 2019. I have no fucking clue what he thinks hardcore is. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to play, the game where I just like show him different cards. Well, what about this? What about this? Uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, it's like, so, you're like showing him mug shots. Was this, was this the hardcore that robbed you? Yeah. Was it this? And he was like, was well, one? I'm in a metalcore band. And I said, and so I'm like, I'm, I'm wrecking my brain. Like, <laughs> and, 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 and you said, cool. The guy I'm starting, <laughs> I'm starting a podcast with came up with that much maligned term. <laughs> so, I was just trying to get out of this. And yeah. uh, I don't know if we've discussed you know, that before, turn. by the way, but uh, Dwid says I invented the term metalcore. And when when he said it, I realized it to be true. It's, you know. Much I, like, I think you should own it. I was going to say, much, much, much like joining Twitter in 2007, it isn't much more than a conversational ornament. But <laughs> yeah. There you go. Here's, here's this thing that's interesting that I'm not sure I'm proud of. <laughs> exactly. So I'm looking at this kid. I'm like, I need a reference point. Like, I just need something that he can understand so I don't have to stand here and fucking explain shit. So I said, in, in 1997, my band played shows with Hatebreed. And he looked at me, he's like, okay, all right, <laughs> done. Like, yeah. I, you know, like that's, I, I found something that like, cause it was literally like, what's a hardcore band that somebody who's 20 and somebody who's 40 would both have seen live. And I came up with a breed and I was like, okay, this will work. And it did. So fast forward two weeks, 
the equipment that I was going to buy is off police hold because it had been sold used. <laughs> and I go in and the same uh, young gentleman helps me at the pro audio desk and he's talking with his buddy at the cash register about his new metalcore bands recording and how hard it slaps and how sick it is. And I were like transacting and I look at his hands and there are these faded X's from a show the night before on the back of each of his hands. <laughs> and nice. I just thought this is literally the perfect way to start this podcast. Like <laughs> this is the universe telling me that it exactly gets where I am right now and is in on the joke. I think we've discovered what this podcast is about. It's about two old friends managing mental health into middle age. Yeah. Period. But Hoosier Illusion is a great name for that, too. And obviously, that that's yeah. going to cover a lot of the things. That, but yeah, of all of our various interests and where they overlap that's, that's and will right. undoubtedly come up, it, the conversation about mental health is, is louder and more important than ever right now. And for me, you know, my own version of the wooden boy that I am, that, you know, facing your fears and all of that, it's probably the... There are a few subjects I can think of that are, are more difficult for me to sort of publicly trudge through. Um, I, in fact, I may, I may actually have an easier time doing it publicly in a sense that that whole thing of standing up and talking to a room of 500 people is easier than a room of five people sort of vibe and, and, a, and a podcast being both of those things. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're going to be on a, you're going to be talking with me and I'll be showing my ass on a weekly basis. So, you know, what, whatever you're, whatever you're saying is not going to, drop with as much impact when your co-host is is you know going as as hard so don't worry folks we've got a lot to unpack <laughs> we have <laughs> we have hours and hours and hours of quote-unquote content yeah you want to well, talk about it, deaths of close friends you want to talk about drug addiction you want to talk about childhood issues divorce abandonment death of a parent we've got it all folks step right up I think if white dudes are going to talk about anything in the public sphere right now, it should probably be the mental health of white dudes because our mental health problems cause a disproportionate amount of damage in this country. So the harder we work amongst ourselves to fix our shit and get our heads right, the better off everyone's going to be. And, you know, and it's going to be a lot like Wolverine where, uh, you know, there's going to be some mystery and some tidbits trot it out as we unpack and carve back the layers and then eventually it'll be like whoa here's this crazy episode where it all comes out yeah um, well it's when i was a kid god i mean probably in the early 90s i was like probably maybe junior high my dad said something talking about like rock star behavior like axel had done something that was in the news like i think maybe the montreal show was in the news like whatever that the fucking riot he caused my dad just said, nobody wants a happy Axl Rose. <laughs> and yeah. so that, that phrase stuck with me. And so it's, it's like I've always had a fear of like, well, if I'm not miserable, will I be able to create anything with impact? Yeah. If I'm not miserable, am I compelling? Um, and I just had this thought like, well, if we – if we actually get healthy, is that the end of the podcast? Is like, is that is that where the arc <laughs> takes us? Like, the final episode is like, yeah, things are pretty good and we're just okay now. You know, like I get a, I got a couple of texts from my therapist because I had to reschedule stuff, and she's like, "Do you want to just let me know when you need a session?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm okay right now. Shit's 
there's some difficult stuff that I'm handling right now, but I'm handling it, which two years ago I would not be. Well, and, and not to jump way, way ahead, but, uh, my, uh, philosophical worldview right now involves the idea that our completion, our wholeness is interdependent on our lack of, you know, our, our brokenness and our, our incompleteness that it's all, that it all actually sort of exists within the same space at the same time. And for someone who considers myself a, a fan of words and reasonably articulate, I'm still kind of uh, forming those thoughts into coherent sentences. But, um, but yeah, I've got a lot, a lot to say about that whole thing. And I, and I think it will kind of dovetail nicely with where you're at and, you know, yeah. And that idea of that endpoint, which was another unintentional hardcore reference just now. Well, yeah, this is all about catharsis. So eventually we'll have to have an endpoint. And I hope this podcast leaves an aftertaste. Part of that reluctance for me anyway, and I would imagine for other people, you, you never know quite how like the other the person on the other end may not realize how much they've bitten off with certain lines of questioning and i almost feel sort of emotionally cheated if i start to give them quote unquote the real answer or the long answer and realize like midway through that they're tuning out because they didn't act you know it's, it, it's kind of like people asking each other how are you doing all day um you can that happens often enough that you get a sense for when someone sincerely wants some sort of detailed answer about how you're doing or whether or not it's just a very casual, Hey, how's it going? Oh, Hey man. Um, and I, I run into those situations, you know, case in point this morning, dropping my son off at kindergarten and having the morning chit chat with some of the other parents, which brings up a lot of the issues you're discussing and a lot of the issues that are in your piece where you're sort of, you're standing there and you're like, I have, so many things in common with all these people I'm standing around and yet I feel so other and I feel so like there's this other part of who I am that, uh, I would prefer to, you know, wear under my clothing, like a, like underoos, um, (laughs) rather than expose how much of my otherness is really here. And then part of that is just like, "Ah, I don't want to engage anyway. And, and so, so case in point, one of the other parents asked me how my weekend was, which has never happened. <laughs> and so I said, you know, oh, I was, you know, did this and that. And I took my kids to their first concert. And then the natural follow-up question of, oh, who did you see? And it's one of those things, much like you rolling the dice with hardcore, where, you know, there's going to be those surprising moments where you're going to say hardcore and they're going to go, oh, what kind of hardcore? But, you know, when I said Andy Black, I just got, glazed over face but almost like a like a glazed over face of disappointment and and i'm sure i'm reading too much into the moment but it felt like i had answered incorrectly (laughs) you know uh and then she was like well what's that and i was like ah it's kind of pop rock and yeah and part of it is just sort of how fragmented culture has become like there are you know a, a friend of mine tweeted something last night about how star wars marvel movies the super bowl Game of Thrones are some of the only, you know, the closest things we have to that sort of the finale of MASH episode, uh, you know, some of these, the times in pop culture where um, there were a lot more universal reference points because there were so many, so much fewer choices. So, you know, on the one hand, the guy I took my kids to go see has 2 million something Instagram followers. And, you know, I've been with, I've been with him when people literally scream at the side of him 
of this intense fandom. Uh, you know, him, he and his wife have had to move a couple of times because fans found out where they lived and they exist in sort of this level of fame and notoriety where you're well known enough to have that type of fandom and for them to sort of obsessively, you know, track down where you live. Uh, but you don't have the financial success to be able to live somewhere where that, that, that like prevents that from happening. It's that thing where it's like, I just wish I hadn't brought it up at all, you know, because I, I don't yeah. want, I don't want to unpack a whole bunch. I just, once you get out of your own head enough to start thinking about the other people in the situation, like maybe her disappointment was that she was hoping to find something to connect with, with you. And she didn't, she wasn't in on the thing and she was, she lost her chance to find something to talk about with another person because it wasn't her frame of reference. Wait, are you saying we should try to think about what the other person's going through? <laughs> it it yeah. has an interesting effect on my interactions when I do. For people that value empathy and compassion, and there are those moments where you realize how wrapped up in yourself you can actually get. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and that could have that disappointment could have even been like, oh no, did he just reference some cool thing that I'm not hip to? Um, yeah. Do I not? Do I look uncool now because I don't know who Indy Black is? And yeah, and then again, that's an interesting thing about subculture, right? Because certain things can have so much notoriety within a certain subculture. And that's only become more and more fragmented. I mean, you know, someone who watches all the various food networks and follows various celebrity chefs might reference something from that world. And I'm going to have the same amount of awareness of that as, yeah. you know, someone might have of hate breed or whatever. It's funny when people... I think people in, in sports media still do this where they talk about superstars and it's like, if you're not Beyonce or like Ronaldo, you're not a superstar. Like if, if you could go to a mall in Des Moines and people don't come up to take a picture of you, you're not a superstar. You might be a celebrity or a niche, whatever, but like superstardom is so rare because it's impossible for, to get that kind of you know, market penetration unless you're literally like in the supermarket. Like you have to be on magazine covers and on broadcast TV and on cable and on social media and enough people have to be aware of you to have an opinion about you or to mention you. You know, if, if you just yeah. happen to be like a really good, a really good race car driver okay, that means that maybe one in 500 Americans would recognize you on the street, but that ain't superstardom. Well, and what's interesting about the point you're making is that there's so many, uh, because things are so fragmented and there's so many different wormholes you can go down or go through rather, um, you, you have more people I feel like that would be recognized in that shopping mall in Des Moines, but it's going to be, you know, by two kids. By two kids, yeah. Uh, whereas there are very, there are less people than there used to be that can shut that shopping mall down just by wandering right. around. My uh, hesitation and, and awkwardness in those types of social situations is more about that idea of unraveling this, like, oh, I'm part of this like whole other world, and that you know, and and there was a time in life where that used to be comic books, that used to be, you know, certain things that have now 
gone mainstream. You know, veganism, certain, you know, plant-based diet. Like, that's everyone knows what that is now. Whereas, yeah. you know, you and I certainly remember the era of, like, a vegan? What's a vegan? I, what's interesting about that also is that something I've noticed in the last couple of years, you know, I believe in those values in terms of animal liberation and all of that as, as much as I ever have. And, you know, and the sort of immediacy and the urgency of animal agriculture and how it relates to the environment and so on is more uh, pressing than ever. And yet I am less inclined to talk about it than I've ever been in my entire life. <laughs> and it's not that I don't feel that those conversations are important. I, I do, like I said, I'm probably more so than ever. But yeah, when that kind of progressive chain of inevitable questions begins to emerge, um, I just don't feel like talking about it. And I, and I suppose it's different if, if it were, you know, I guess if I was what I'd say dating someone new and there was, you're in the midst of some important get to know you conversation and that comes up and then you really start digging into it. But man, like small talk with strangers and acquaintances and casual friends and, and the like, Hey, wait, so why don't you, why don't you eat meat? Is it for, you know, a, a lot of times lately, it seems like there's this leading question of like, is it for health reasons or like the environment or like you care about the animals? And I just go, yes. <laughs> um, and it's <laughs> it kind of like you said, it's like, well, you can come off like a dick by not engaging in the conversation at all or a know-it-all by pontificating about all of your lovely beliefs that are superior to theirs. There, it, just, it seems like a lose-lose situation, unless it's a very specific type of context. Um, I would imagine, you know, there's people who do, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Muay Thai who were doing it once upon a time where it was very subculture-y, and now that it's a little more ubiquitous, um, it's a little less strange to go gee shopping or something. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> Bunting said something years ago that it is one of the truest assessments of the hardcore scene of that era that I've heard. And that's that if you were involved in hardcore in a, in a certain time frame, you could have an in-depth conversation about almost anything with anyone you run into. Like for some reason, there was an era where we got into so much shit so deeply that there's all sorts of stuff that I can, I can have long involved conversations with that is stuff that's totally alien to most people or things that they're aware of, like veganism, they're aware of it, but they don't know so much that they can talk about it for more than 25 seconds. And not that they have to, but it's like, Part of part of the thing that I feel alienated from other people is when no matter what we talk about, I always seem to be comic book guy where I know too mm. much or mm. I have too strong opinions where like I don't know what the acceptable level of knowledge is to have about things so as to never get into – never make anyone feel uncomfortable or never like get into a spot where – all of a sudden you realize that you care about something a lot more than the other person does. And yeah. they don't really want to be talking about it this deeply. Like you said, it's, it's just weird. And I've, I've been in those spots where like, you can just start talking with anybody about any random thing. And, but yeah, you do, you do find yourself kind of pulling your punches, so to speak though. Right. Because you're, 
like you said, you any moment you're going to have said too much and tipped your hand as the weirdo that knows lots of weird things about this weird stuff, <laughs> as opposed to someone who just had a couple of interesting facts to contribute. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the, the Covington Christian kids in D.C., like, I knew what black Hebrew Israelites were. Right. And that was like right. arcane fucking knowledge to people in my life because they'd lived, they'd never heard of it. They'd never seen them. It was like, I, I, I don't know. Like when, when you lived the lives that we lived, you just encountered more stuff. You experienced more things. And I don't know if it was the travel. I don't know if it was like intellectual curiosity or just like the randomness of the shit that we would get into. But I just seem to have this well of, of experience or knowledge that's like all weird and hard to convey to people without coming off like a total fucking weird beard. And, I've, and I'm finding myself in certain situations just not wanting to comment because I also have <laughs> some of this, you know, elder statesman-ish well, it's not about me and I don't need to have an opinion on everything. Like, But I sometimes hold back for that reason. It's all wrapped up in what you just described where there's a certain threshold you're going to, you're going to stumble through. That's going to like reveal you as this alien, as this other that you didn't seem to be a minute ago. Uh, but yeah, the Hebrew Israelite thing is a great example. Seeing all these conversations about, white privilege or reparations or, you know, identity politics or uh, income inequality, things that not just hardcore and punk rock, but our particular era, our particular geography, our particular group of friends were so, we were so immersed in that it's sort of surreal hearing like echoes of that, uh, you know, ping ponging around in the mainstream. And, and, and seeing like these purity tests of people, uh, you know, falling into some of the same traps that we saw on a much smaller scale uh, in social groups, you know, where everything was a purity test and, and every, you know, everything was was constantly being canceled <laughs> or, you know, chastised or, uh, you know, cast aside because of some uh, slight, you know, real or perceived um, or some weak link in the chain of. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, we we were fucking canceling people on a weekly basis in 1997. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it had much less impact. You know, whenever I eat at a new plant-based restaurant, for example, I can't help but at least for a moment think about you know touring in the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, and and finding the one weird vegan spot in whatever town. And again, like the Hebrew Israelite thing. Um, I know so much about so many different religious cults that have veganism as part of their faith, because as a vegan in the nineties, you ended up inevitably eating at so many religious cult affiliated restaurants. And it's like, I want to stand up every time I'm in there and been like, you guys don't know what it was like. And, well, why, why was it also that even if like you could go to a vegan restaurant somewhere in America and there was a 50, 50 chance that if, if you asked enough questions or looked around, you would find out what religious cult it was associated with. Yes. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a matter of if it was just like, which one, like, Oh, there's, <laughs> there's a framed picture of this long haired dude in the corner wearing a robe. Yeah. Like, or there's, or, asked, or, or there's advertisements for the, uh, <laughs> for the fashion line from the reincarnated Buddha that they call master. 
who's like a yeah. middle-aged woman that is also a fashion designer. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah the theology was always different, but the cult aspect was yeah. always the same. And it was, and it was only, only some of the places, like some place I went to in San Francisco once where they were all wearing like basically the equivalent of like Heaven's Gate uniforms. Um, you know, yeah, it was, it was generally much more subtle. Like you said, like the one frame photo somewhere or the, or the leaflets by the door or the, uh, overly eager answer to <laughs> the opposite of what we're talking about. The people that want you to ask a line of questions that will allow them to unfurl their whole Please trip. Come to our awareness circle. Part of the shift in culture is that it's become acceptable and even encouraged to go to places like that a couple times a week, as opposed to our era, so to speak, where if you walked into a vegan restaurant, there was a 99.9% .9 chance that everyone eating in there was vegan. <laughs> and that's yeah. why they were there. Whereas now I, I would say it's at least in California, 50-50 uh, that that person's even a vegetarian. And it's just more like this is just like a place that it's acceptable to go eat like every other place I go eat. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why my sense of alienation actually grew even even as culture was becoming more accepting of the of the things that still are sort of at the core of my my personality, my humanity, the fact that there are more people who aren't invested in the stuff that I cared about or care about now, who are aware of it, makes me feel more alone because it's it's like, you know, in the in the late 80s, somebody walks by you in a punk or a thrash metal t-shirt mm -hmm. and there's like, there's some acknowledgement that you exist on a fringe together and that you can relate to each other even if you wouldn't like each other. Like, there's there's a bond. Well, now, like, literally everyone under the age of 50 has tattoos. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, like, just ran, like, every 18-year-old kid, when they graduate from high school, gets, like, a fucking bodysuit and neck tattoos. Yeah. So then there's, you know, everybody and their mom is, is doing plant-based diets. And, you know, everyone is, you know, into... You know, whatever, alternative fuels, biofuels, uh, transcendental meditation, just uh, anything weird. <laughs> yoga. Anything, yeah, yoga. <laughs> anything, mi mixed martial any arts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts. Everything that was weird that we were into or that people in our circles were into is now just commoditized. So... I'm walking down the street and I see somebody with, you know, a jujitsu club shirt on. And I'm like, I have no idea if that person and I have anything in common or share any values. And yeah. Whereas there was else, a time in 1995 where you might, where you would see that shirt and you would be like, I want to talk to that person. I want to know that yeah, person. <laughs> exactly. Like let's hang out, teach me things. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I'm in line and I glance over and there's some dude in a cradle of filth shirt. And I'm like, no, no, like, I'm just going to pretend I didn't see that because who, <laughs> who fucking knows, you know? Yeah. So what we were just talking about and sort of the point you were making, which I agree with about how you don't have that immediate recognition and familiarity with a stranger based on the same kind of cultural markers that you used to. And yet that fellowship, so to speak, does still exist. And I guess you just have to look for different things and sort of feel different things. And maybe it's more meaningful because of that, or maybe it's the same amount of meaningful. It's just shifted and 
how you identify it and experience it. You know, if there's anything that I have to offer you in terms of advice about the sort of fragmented parts of us that we would prefer to kind of merge into a more cohesive whole in front of people, I've had some experiences in the last few years, kind of even in the professional world, where I was in situations where one might thought it would have been more advantageous to keep some of those parts of your life compartmentalized, only to find out what we saw as disadvantages in certain situations were in fact advantages. Finding others of your kind, so to speak, uh, it still happens. You know, I, a few years ago, um, I wrote a 12 episode series uh, for Marvel that aired on the Go90 platform, which was Verizon's uh, failed attempt to create a YouTube rival. Yeah. And so Marvel did this uh, talk show that was hosted by a good friend of mine, Danica, goes by Comic Book Girl 19 on YouTube. The episodes were designed for audience members that were familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but not so familiar with the comics. And once we were through all of the pre-production and the scripts had all been written and finished and turned in, I was on set for two reasons. One, to do some pre-interviews with each of the guests before they actually went out onto the set and did the interview with Danica. Uh, and also to be there for any uh, rewrites or polishes or changes that needed to be made in the moment. So Marvel, being a big corporation, obviously, needed to have a presence on the set uh, to give us notes such as, you can't say dynamic duo, that's DC. <laughs> you know, those kind of notes were like a necessity. And dude from Marvel rolls in and he has a denim jacket with a tragedy back patch and various, you know, assorted accessories representing like Converge and Baroness. And sure enough, like he's, you know, he's from the hardcore scene. And, you know, we didn't get in depth enough to find out who our mutual friends probably were, but I'm, I'm sure it wasn't many degrees off. Uh, we were, you know, close to the same age and uh, something converged, pun definitely not intended, to uh, put us both in that same place at the same time. There's, there's an irony that I'm aware of that – so my involvement in the hardcore scene definitely left me feeling isolated as an adult uh, because of all of that weird experience that you have. But my experience in the hardcore scene also equipped me with certain skills and experiences that I've leveraged in my career to be able to do things that other people haven't as easily or wouldn't have thought to or wouldn't have thought was possible because, you know, whatever inclination I had towards entrepreneurship as a kid was, you know, tested over and over and over again in hardcore. Like literally all I did in hardcore was launch projects and, either watch them fail spectacularly or nurture them to some level of success. Like, you know, running a, running a record distro, like how many 16 year old kids pack up boxes of records they purchased wholesale and travel around the Midwest setting up in, you know, essentially a DIY mall with other people doing the same thing at a show, you know, promoting shows, booking tours, you know, finding illegal places to do shows, trying to, to swing business deals with other sketchy people doing stuff, you know, without permits and, and, and the proper, uh, forms filled out. Like you just, you learn, if you do it long enough, you learn how to get shit done by hook or by crook. And 
what I find, one of the things that, that I find makes me different than other people I interact with is my first question tends to be how, not if, and it's almost never can't, you know, like it's, I want to accomplish this. How am I going to get there? And like I start road mapping because in my experience, you can get most everything you want done by just starting to do it and figuring it out on the fly. It might cost you money. It might be messy, but like you can get it done if you need to, because that's what my life taught me from the age of 15 on, you know? I do wonder uh, what's even comparable to that part of the hardcore scene experience. I, I suppose other people in other genres, whether it's, you know, putting on parties or, or certainly hip hop, that DIY thing that is so essential, you know, in the DNA of, of punk rock and hardcore. Yeah, our life skills that we've brought into some of the least DIY situations imaginable. Uh, you know, we're still carrying that around in our tool belt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very much in my professional life still, still just figuring it out. Like I would anything else. Um, like I, like I was when I was booking shows, you know, like, and inevitably you get into, you get into situations where you're in over your head, but you just, you just figure it out, you know, like, I think I think I was tempered by things that I did or that I experienced in the hardcore scene in ways that a lot of other people weren't, you know, like and that's part of the reason why I like that Facebook group so much is because I I can at least speak the same language as those people and I have similar a similar frame of reference, you know, like I I could talk about parts of the ceiling of the Emerson falling on in flames while they're playing <laughs> the show that I booked for them. And yeah. And that's the reaction because I don't have to explain who in flames is, why I was promoting a concert, <laughs> what the Emerson is, why uh, they'd be playing a show where the roof is fucking falling on the stage while they're playing. Yeah. Um, you know, like all that stuff, that, that institutional embedded knowledge is just there. So yeah, that's that's the comfort level that that I want to that I guess I I fantasize of having with everybody and that I probably will never have, but it it'd be nice. There's some environments and some situations where it's like, oh, well, all of these things that we've experienced and we know about are are fascinating, you know. It, I, I, it, but there's a lot of times where I just it just doesn't it, it feels too self-important for me to want to bring that stuff out. One one interesting aspect I thought these these conversations would would have one aspect is that I always felt like m moving to California afforded you some level of comfort in staying who you were because California and New York have always been uh, producers and sellers of culture so. You know, for, for lack of a better way of explaining it, going to the Warp Tour in Indianapolis is a different way of being than working on Warp Tour or managing bands on the main stage, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So being a 40-year-old dude managing a band or even playing in a band on a Warp Tour stage 
is much different than standing in the crowd as a 40 year old. I know there are no judgment, but like I never, I didn't feel comfortable in that space anymore. Um, which is why I left a long time ago. But, but there was, there was part of that. Like, how do you remain actively punk while also having an adult life? And I decided not to negotiate that because I just left and essentially shut it down. And with the exception of a handful of friendships, like just walked away from it. You know, obviously, and when we're coming together and we're talking with our commonalities, you know, we're going to explore, I'm sure, a lot about bridging the gap and bringing those pieces of yourself back together. Uh, but I'm sure the other side of that coin is undoubtedly there were ways in doing it the way you did it had its own advantages, I would imagine. Yeah, it did. I mean, it'll, I mean we're it'll... focusing on the negative side of it right now, but I'm sure there's there's some there's some incentive certainly for doing it that way. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of toxicity in that scene that I was able to get out of. You know, it's I've used this metaphor for a lot of different things, but it works. You can be sober in a bar, but if you want to stay sober, it probably would be best to stop hanging out in bars. <laughs> right. So if I didn't want to be involved in a super negative culture, then maybe I should not post on hardcore message boards anymore. And maybe I should not go to hardcore shows because, hey, here I am being surrounded by other people who are unhappy and negative and unwilling, unable, whatever, to do something more positive with themselves, which was always funny because – I thought the point of hardcore was to like get to the next thing. The the point of it to me was never to be in this tumble cycle of hate breed lyrics where like you're, you're always picking yourself up off the ground and fighting back against whatever forces are oppressing, oppressing you so that you can make it to the next hardcore show and like buy another t-shirt. Like I thought the point of it was to like overcome the shit that led you to be in the hardcore scene, like to fix the brokenness that you had that forced you into that world and then get out of it. You know, like one of my, one of my favorite Buddhist parables is, is the raft, like the concept of the raft. You build a raft to get you across a river and then you leave it because you don't need the raft when you're walking. So, when something no longer serves a purpose, you set it down. And I feel like without realizing that's what I was doing, that's what I did with hardcore. I didn't think it was going to take me anywhere else that I wanted to go. And I was now carrying it across dry land at great cost to me, my family, etc. So I just put it down. And in the last couple of years, I realized that I probably left some things in the raft that I should have taken with me. But, you know, in the moment, like you can't see 10 years in the future. Like you can only make the next best decision. And to me, the next best decision was to just quit it cold Turkey. You know, I, I, I can still like, I can literally remember the last show I went to, you know, for a decade, uh, I was watching a friend's band play in a basement and I just had this indescribable, indescribably strong feeling that I shouldn't be there anymore. Like this wasn't my world. This was no longer my community. This was no longer 
something I wanted to do for fun and I just needed to go. And I just pushed my way through the crowd and left like mid song. I got to a point with playing music that I was, I was in a bar in the middle of the night in Terre Haute, Indiana. I loved the dudes I was playing music with, but like, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Like all I could think about was how shitty I was going to feel on Monday morning going into the office. And I knew I was never going to have any more fun than I'd already had. I was never going to make anything creatively that was better than what I'd already made. And the longer I did it, the more opportunities I was going to lose professionally where I thought I actually had prospects, you know, like maybe, maybe I just was not confident or wasn't, had never learned to express myself the right way. But I just kind of felt like my creative life had run its course and I had more chance of being a successful person, a well-adjusted person, if I moved on to the white-collar world um, completely. And to some extent, I was right. You know, like my career did turn out pretty well, but there was definitely a part of me that was atrophying the entire time, and there was a grieving process that I never fully went through, losing those relationships, losing that that dysfunctional community because I, I no longer had, you know, I, I no longer was surrounded by people who remembered where they were when Rick to life rode a horse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like it, it's, it's dumb, but like, I don't know. It, you're, uh, you're alone in a crowd. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Hoosier Illusion. And remember, wherever you go, there is always a Hoosier doing something very important there. I can accept the fact that you're completely regressed emotionally, but you're not going to pass my course by turning in someone else's work. What do you think? Someone else wrote this? Look, all I know is that you didn't, and that's what disappoints me. Tell you something else, whoever did write it doesn't know the first thing about Kurt Vonnegut. And another thing, Vonnegut, I'm going to stop payment on a check. What's that? Fuck me. Hey, Kurt, you read lips. Fuck you!